1858, Abraham Lincoln was standing before a large audience, and he spoke some fateful words. You might expect that they were during his presidency, but they actually weren't. He, he was actually running as, uh, for office in the U.S. Senate as a representative from Illinois. And he had just won the party's nomination, and in his acceptance speech, he spoke some fateful words. The words were this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. See, Abraham Lincoln recognized that our United States were not actually all that united. That there was, there was a problem, there was division. He was referring specifically to the problem of slavery. And he recognized that you can't have people on both sides of this issue. This is, this is too big. It is dividing us and tearing us apart. And a house divided cannot stand. It had to be abolished. Now, there were plenty of people that agreed with Lincoln and his stance against slavery, but there were very few politicians that actually came out and publicly said that because it was considered pretty controversial. As a result of these words, Abraham Lincoln lost the election. He was not elected to the United States Senate, but as a result of these words, he was pushed into the national spotlight. And just two years later, was not only nominated and won the nomination for president, but he won the office of president of the United States. With those, those words might have been powerful and bold and controversial, but they actually aren't Abraham Lincoln's. They're Jesus's. Abraham Lincoln just took them from the Bible. And this morning we're going to take a look at the original context of those words to see how God wants us to, to look at this house that he has built and is building. He wants us to see, as we kick off our new series, We Are Family, what it means to be part of his family, what it means to stand together, and how we watch out for divisions so that they don't come up and break us apart. Now, our, our sermon text, the, the section of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning, it's on page 9. You'll find uh, some places to take notes if you'd like or fill in the blanks with a couple of our key takeaways on page 10. They're from the Gospel of Mark. And Mark starts out his gospel, his record of Jesus' earthly ministry, a little different than the other three gospel writers. Right? Matthew gives you some Jesus' lineage Luke tells you the whole story of Jesus' birth. John tells you kind of some of the big picture, who he is, he's the word, what that means. Mark just dives in. He dives right in to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he tells how Jesus was going around. He was preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. He was healing people of all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. He was driving out demons and a lot of people liked it. It's not really surprising, right, that Jesus was healing and doing all these great things and people were coming to him and wanted to hear what he had to say and wanted him to heal them. And so everywhere Jesus went, a crowd gathered or a crowd followed. 
And that's exactly what we see in the first words of our text this morning, verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So Jesus had gathered with these, uh, in this house, he had gathered with a group of people. They'd invited him to come over and eat dinner, but he couldn't. Like, so many people wanted to see Jesus, wanted to hear Jesus, wanted to be in the room with him, that they packed the house so full that they couldn't even, they couldn't even eat. Everybody wanted to be near and to hear Jesus, with one exception, his family. Take a look at verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. Jesus' brothers, sisters, family, we know that he had brothers and sisters. We actually find some of their names in the Bible. His mom, they all, they thought this is, this is crazy. They weren't, wow, look at all the people following him. They were like, look at all the people following him. What's going on here? This is nuts. He's out of his mind is what they said. It's interesting, though, that when you think of, stop and think about, for a moment, who Jesus' family is, right? Like I said, we know some of his brothers and sisters. They're not super well-known from Scripture accounts. But what about his mom? We know who that is, right? That's Mary. Rewind 30 years, and this is the same Mary that an angel appeared to her all of a sudden and told her, even though you're a virgin... This is humanly impossible. You're going to be pregnant. And you're going to give birth to a son and you should name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And Mary's reaction was, okay, if that's what God says, then that's what will happen. And in two and a half months, we're going to hear that's exactly what happened, right? As everything that God had said through the angel came about. And when Jesus was born and the shepherds had come and had worshipped and left, and, and what does the Bible tell us? Maybe you can even hear the words in your mind, the end of the, the Luke 2 account. Maybe you said them as a kid, and Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart, right? Now, if you fast forward 12 years, Jesus and his family, they went with a whole group of other people to the temple in Jerusalem. They were going to worship God. And after they had worshipped, the whole group, again, left. And as they're on the road, they did a head count and were missing one. Where's Jesus? And Mary and Joseph ran back to Jerusalem and searched frantically for him. And they found him sitting right there in church, in the temple courts listening to the rabbis, the pastors, listening to them, learning from them, even teaching them. And they kind of scolded him, and Jesus said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And again, the Bible says, Mary treasured up all of this in her heart. Mary has had, like, incredible behind-the-scenes access to know who Jesus is. She's, she knows the promises. She knows the prophecy. She's been a part of a lot of it. 
as Jesus has grown up in her home, and now those promises are coming to fruition as he begins his earthly ministry. But Mary didn't connect the dots. She, along with Jesus' brothers and sisters, they, they struggled to see Jesus beyond the person that they thought they knew. They couldn't see the bigger picture. They, they were, as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt, right? I don't know if they were contemptuous of him, but they certainly didn't see him as the Savior, as the long-awaited Messiah. That makes no sense. He's certainly not God. He's the guy that, the guy that Judah and the others, they would wrestle with, right? He's the, the guy who helped us with the chores. He's the guy who would go out and, and help Joseph in the carpenter's shop. They didn't see Jesus as, as the Savior. No, they thought, he's out of his mind. The problem is, if you deny who Jesus is, you create division. And it isn't just Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters who, who struggled with this idea of who Jesus is. It's exceedingly common, sadly. All too common, right? The, the world will say, yeah, Jesus was just, he was a historical figure. I believe that. There's enough evidence and testimony about it. He was a, a really good teacher. He was a, a really moral leader. He was even a visionary and a revolutionary. But God? No. Or they'll look at Jesus, even, even within the Christian church, even those who claim to be Christian, who know Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. They'll look at Jesus and go, yeah, he's, he might be your way, but he's not mine. He might be a way, but that doesn't mean he's the way. And they deny who Jesus is, the things that he really did, and in doing so, they, they create division. The interesting thing is, if you think about it, Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters, they were around the Word all the time, right? I mean, literally, they lived with the Word because the Bible calls Jesus the Word, right? He's the very embodiment of God, making God known. They were with the Word. They lived with the Word day in and day out for 30 years, and yet... The problem was that they didn't connect the word to faith. But that's not just a married problem, is it? You can come to church every week. You can come to church every day if you want. But there's a real problem, and we need to be aware of it so we watch out for it. It's our first takeaway this morning. That if I don't connect God's word to faith, I end up denying who Jesus is. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that if your mind wanders for a couple of minutes this morning, you're denying who Jesus is. This means, though, that if you just show up and you don't really care about what's being taught, if you don't really care about what you read in the Bible, because you're not connecting it to what God says about who he is and what he's done, well, you're turning the Bible into just a moral guidebook. And what you're really doing is you're ripping out of it the life-giving message that Jesus is your Savior. 
Because that's, that's really the beating heart. That's the lifeblood of the word of God from the beginning through the end is about God's promise and God's fulfillment to save you and me and all people. The whole point of the whole thing is about a savior, about Jesus. And if you miss that, if you just read it for content, if you just read it for, for facts and figures, you miss who Jesus is. And you miss what he's done. That's one significant way that division pops up, even among the family of God. The second one follows right after it in verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, literally the lord of the flies, right? By Satan. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus' family had struggled to come to grips, to grasp that Jesus is actually healing people or driving out demons. The teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they had no such reluctance. They knew people were really being healed, that demons were really being driven out, but they came up with an alternate explanation. Not the one that Jesus gave them, not that he is God, that he's the long-awaited Messiah that they've been longing for. No, that can't be. There's got to be a different explanation. It must be. The only way that he has the power to do these things, these supernatural things, is because of Satan. And not only were they denying Jesus is God, but they were elevating Satan. Isn't that a crazy thought that religious leaders would do that? Do we as Christians maybe ever do that? When we pray for somebody who's sick and that person gets better. And, and maybe you don't do it, but maybe you know someone who said it. Or maybe even in the back of your mind you've thought, yeah, but it wasn't really the, the prayer that healed them. It was, it was the medicine. It was the medication. It was the treatment. And there is truth to that, but ultimately who gave the medication? It's power. Who brought about the healing. And, and really what we're doing is we're doing anything we can to elevate the medication, to me any treatment, and to diminish the power of God. Or maybe something really good happens to you and you go, man, this is my lucky day. Maybe you're on a string and you've had a few good days and you jokingly say, I should go to Vegas or Cripple Creek because, man, my luck, is, my luck is really going. And what we're doing is we're giving more power to some kind of four-leaf clover or furry rabbit's foot or some other superstitious thing. And we're elevating that even over the power of God, the one who gives all good things. What's sad is we do exactly what those religious leaders do, were doing. They were looking for any way to diminish the power of God by elevating anything else in its place. Now, why is the real question? Well, the religious leaders, it was pretty simple. They were jealous. They were jealous that Jesus had all these people coming to them, coming to him, I'm sorry. They were jealous of his popularity. They were jealous because he's doing things that he shouldn't be doing. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's breaking all of these traditions and rules that they've put in place, and he didn't care. And he said they had no basis in Scripture. How dare he? And he's even telling people that, that are like the outcasts, that are the, 
the people that society just says are unacceptable, they are, everybody knows they're sinners. They're rotten people. And he's saying that they're acceptable to God because of God's gift of forgiveness. And they, they despise Jesus. They were jealous of him and they hated his teaching. And so they were looking for anything and everything to discredit him. Even willing to elevate Satan. All so that they could get the spotlight back on themselves. Ah. And there's the problem, isn't it? Because that spotlight, mm, that's something that we want too, isn't it? It's our second takeaway this morning that I cause division in the family of God when I want God's spotlight on me. See, that's a real temptation. We all have it. We all struggle with it. It's a known thing. But the problem is if we don't recognize it and see it for what it is and acknowledge it's a temptation and it's a dangerous thing, well, that, that's where it gets us into trouble. I stand up here and I've got 80-something sets of eyes on me. Most of you are, still have your eyes open. 80 sets of ears that are at least somewhat listening, right? Ooh, what's he going to say next? And I can, ooh, ooh this is kind of nice. Look at all these people that are here for me. But that's not why you're here. You didn't come here for me. I certainly hope not. But there's a temptation to start thinking that, isn't there? No, you came to hear God, to hear God speak through his word by the power of his spirit to strengthen your faith. You came for that reason. But what about when you're the one, when you're the one who's serving in our, our music team, when you're the one who's helping with the setup, when you're the one who's helping with Foundation Kids, when you're the one who's hosting a life group, when you're the one who's bringing some delicious dessert to our picnic today that you've slaved over for hours yesterday. And what do you kind of want? A little spotlight? A little thanks? A little, ooh, that was really good. Oh, man, how'd you make that? I want the recipe. If nobody says anything about the quality of your dessert, are you going to go home today thinking, why did I even bother? Why? Why do you want people to notice your abilities? To notice how much effort and time you put in for God? Because what do you want? The spotlight? A little bit of what belongs to God you want for you? It's funny, Jesus actually addressed this in another part of the scripture. He, he said, if you've done your duty, good job. You don't need any thanks. You've done what a servant is supposed to do. Your duty. The praise, the glory, the honor goes to God. But there's a real temptation for us that we want the approval. We want the pat on the back. We want the thank you. We want the spotlight instead of having it firmly fixed on Jesus. These are real dangers 
that threatened to divide God's house. Jesus recognized them, and he addressed them head on. Take a look, beginning at verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a house is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Jesus is telling the religious leaders, you are saying that I'm driving out demons because I came, I am possessed by a demon. That makes no sense. Demons don't fight against demons. This makes, this is illogical. You've totally missed the point. In your effort to discredit me, you've done something that is is totally wrong. Think about that. We know it, right? We know that these words are true, that a house divided against itself, when a house is split, that's at its weakest, and that's when it's most vulnerable. The Israelites knew it. These were people who knew their history. They knew that after Solomon, the kingdom had divided. They had not only divided territory, but they had divided hearts, divided loyalties, divided faiths. They no longer worshipped God and God alone. And there was strife, and there was dissension, and it made them weak. And their enemies took advantage of it and attacked and conquered even to the point of leveling Jerusalem and carrying them into captivity. But we know that too, don't we? If you are a student of history, of U.S. history, you know that our our weakest point is when cousins were fighting against cousins, when even brothers were fighting and killing brothers during the Civil War. We were a house divided, a nation divided. And it made no sense. We heard about it in our first scripture reading this morning, right? From 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul said, you've got some people who are are saying, yeah, well, I follow this guy. I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, that's Peter. They They had chosen whom they followed rather than whom they believed in. I mean, we can understand, right? I mean, Paul writes some amazing letters. Like, I'd just love to sit and listen to that guy for a day or two. I'd probably need some brain breaks because, wow, some of his stuff is deep. But wouldn't that be amazing? And then Apollos, I I would imagine that guy is a fantastic speaker. And then you got Peter. I mean, the guy walked and talked with Jesus for three years. He actually got to walk on the water for a couple of steps before he began to sink. Like, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd love to listen to him. I'd love to hear what it was like. Do we do that? Where we pick and choose because... I like that guy. I want to listen to that preacher. I, want to, I, I, I prefer this kind of music. I like the big organ sound. No, no, no. I like, I like the, the band sound. I like music that's, oh, that's just slow and melodic, and it makes me think of like the angel choirs in heaven, the hallelujah chorus. I like something that gets my toe tapping and has a little rhythm and it sticks with me. And what are we doing? We're choosing style over substance. Because what's really the important part? Is it the person who speaks, the messenger, or the message? Is it the, the style of the music or the content of the music? And what it conveys and what it teaches? 
Because styles come and go. What I want, no, I prefer this, no, I like that. Well, that changes. You are all living proof of that. Because you are not wearing the same clothes that your grandparents were. Or the same style of clothes, I should say. And the fact that everybody isn't here wearing their Sunday best is proof of how styles are generational, right? Because two or three generations ago, you didn't go to church without wearing your Sunday best. I'm totally okay with the fact, but we need to recognize that style is not really the important part. The substance is. And what's the substance? Well, the problem is that these, these religious leaders, they were fighting, right? And that's why Jesus said, stop. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he goes into verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The strong man here is the devil. Who's the one who came in and tied him up? Who's the one who rendered him powerless? Jesus. The devil had no power over Jesus. He tempted him, but he failed. Jesus came and was able to drive out demons, was able to, to heal and forgive and get rid of the, the guilt and the shame because that's what Jesus had come to do. The Bible says the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to conquer the devil. And how does he do that? Well, that leads us to verse 28. And if you only listen to one verse of this text and one sentence from my mouth, please listen to this one. Jesus says, truly, don't miss this. I tell you, people can be forgiven, how many? All. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. I'm guessing that there's somebody here today that came in thinking, I don't know if I should be here. I don't know if I deserve to be here. I don't know if God loves me. Maybe you're thinking of something in the past. Maybe you're thinking of something you've done. Maybe you're thinking of something that you think can't be forgiven. Maybe it's something that's so bad, bad, that society says it's not forgivable. Maybe it's something that even your siblings, even your own parents say, we can't forgive you. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I forgive you. That all of your sins have been forgiven. He didn't pick and choose which ones he was willing to take, to, to take on the cross. He didn't say, oh, that one, but ooh, not that one. I'm not touching that one. No, he took them all. And he gave his life. He shed his blood. He cried out, it is finished for all. Because he made the payment, the complete and full payment for every single sin. So stop reliving and stop revisiting and take it to Jesus. Take it to the cross and say, Lord, help. And hear what he says. I forgive you. I have paid for that sin as well. That brings us to our third takeaway. That no matter how bad I think my sin is, Jesus forgives me. See, because so often we come up with what we think are unforgivable sins. Oh, 
That one can't be forgiven. Oh, that one's so terrible. And Jesus says, you're wrong. That's why I came, is to forgive, to pay for sin. But there is something that he wants us to be aware of, and, and it comes in the next verse. It's a warning that there is a sin that he says is unforgivable. He doesn't tell us to make you freak out. He doesn't tell us because you've done it. He says this so that we are aware of it and we watch out for it. Look what he says, verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. See, Jesus is flat out warning He's calling out the religious leaders who were saying, you didn't come from God, you came from Satan. They were replacing the work of God, the Holy Spirit, with the work of the devil. And Jesus warns them, that's blaspheming, that's slandering the Holy Spirit. You need to watch out. Now, if that makes you wonder, did I do that? Have I done that? I'm trying to remember. And if you're freaking out a little bit, you didn't. I guarantee it. Because if you're actually freaking out about it, if you're actually concerned, worried, even a little bit afraid, you haven't. Because someone who blasphemes, who slanders the Holy Spirit, they couldn't care less. They don't care whether they have slandered the Holy Spirit. They don't care whether they have offended God. They don't care whether somebody calls them a Christian or an atheist. They just don't care. And so the fact that you do shows that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus isn't telling us because we have. Jesus is telling us so that we don't. So that we're warned, so that we see that there is real spiritual danger with sin. So that we don't just go, well, yeah, but God forgives them all. But so that we understand there, there is danger in sin, and it's a slippery slope, and he wants us to recognize and acknowledge and confess sin and be forgiven so that we don't end up falling down this, into this trap. He warned these people because he wanted them to be part of his family and that's what he wants for you, to be part of his family. He's made you part of his family. And, and we are, as a family, we are united, right? What's the one thing that unites us? What's the, the lowest common base denominator? Well, the Bible says all, that would be us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all have been forgiven freely by Jesus Christ. What unites us? We're broken people. It's not that we come here because we're perfect. We aren't. We come here because we're broken, but we know who heals us. It's our Savior Jesus, and that's why we're here. That's what unites us, this beautiful and amazing gift of forgiveness in Christ. It's a pretty different definition of a family, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is about to say in the next verses. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. 
Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister, my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does God's will. See, we're used to defining family based on blood, right? Based on blood lines, family kinship. Maybe, and maybe it's not blood, maybe you're adopted. So then we, we base it on, well, I have the last name or I lived in this house with them for so long that, that they're my family. But Jesus has a different definition. It's not based on blood. It's because of the blood of Jesus. And he says, what makes you family is whoever does God's will. That's who Jesus' brother and sister and mother are. That's what our, next, that's what our last takeaway is this morning. It's to understand then what is God's will. Please understand God's will is not simply to the do's and the don'ts. Because if that were, you know how many brothers and sisters Jesus would have? Zero. Because nobody keeps his will perfectly. If that's what God's will is referring to. But the Bible says that God's will is simply to believe in Jesus as my Savior. That's what God wills for you. That's what God wants for you. That you would know and trust Jesus is your Savior from sin. That's what makes you a part of his family. We are united by this beautiful gift of faith that God has given to us, that he's called us to, to be in his family. And do you realize what he paid? If you have ever talked to somebody who's adopted, it's not cheap, right? There's a, a lot of lawyer fees and all these other costs and expenses. It's, a, it's an expensive and time-consuming process. But this adoption, your adoption into God's family was far, far more costly. God sent his own son to suffer and die so that you might be his. So that you would be his son, his daughter. Jesus gave his life to make you his brother, his sister. And then he's called you to faith. He's sent his Holy Spirit to make you his own, to rescue you out of the orphanage of unbelief and into his family whom he loves. We're family not because of blood, but because of the blood of Jesus. And over the coming weeks through this series, we're going to take a look at what that means. Because we are family, we are family of God, which means that we also are part of the family of believers. And what does it mean that we as a church are a family? That's what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks as we see how family grows together and family forgives and family does, looks out for one another and carries each other's burdens because that's what family does. And we are family. And we stand together because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's why God wants us to always remember what unites us, that Jesus is our Savior. And that we stand united in that. We give that forgiveness to one another. And we look to him for guidance and wisdom and love in all things. So that we stand united. Amen.